Greetings, friends, and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon was born on the 19th of June, 1834, and he died at the end of January, 1892. Our purpose in this podcast is not so much to consider Spurgeon, but to use Spurgeon, a man gifted by God for the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ, as an opportunity to consider the Christ whom Spurgeon preached, and the preaching of that Christ, so that we ourselves are instructed, enlivened, warmed with what it means to be true gospel men and women. Each week we read through a selection of Spurgeon's sermons. This week we're on sermons 178 to 184. These are found in the New Park Street Pulpit, Volume 4. If you want to follow along with us, you can find us on Twitter at Reading Spurgeon, or you can sign up at a uh, a page at the Media Gratii website so that you can find out more about the uh, the weekly readings that we do. Each week we select one particular sermon which we hope will be of particular benefit to those who are following along and that's the subject of this podcast and this week's sermon is 181 which is simply entitled Particular Redemption. We'll explain what that means as we go. It was preached in 1858 on a Lord's Day morning, 28th of February. Spurgeon was at the Music Hall, the Royal Surrey Gardens, uh, a massive place where uh, several thousand people would have been able to gather together. His text on that occasion was Matthew 20 and verse 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister or to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, what's fascinating first about this sermon is the introduction that Spurgeon gives with his reasoning why he's preaching on this and subsequently similar topics. He's aware that when he first began to preach in this uh, large building, forced to go there really by the the pressure of numbers uh, out of the new Park Street Chapel in which he was preaching, he was primarily an evangelist and he was aware that week by week there were different faces before him. But now he knows that about three quarters of the people who are gathered are no longer Uh, just passing through, as it were, but they're keeping coming back. They're people who have probably been converted. And less now an evangelist, he has become more a pastor because he's got a more fixed congregation. So the circumstances have changed, and so the teaching needs to change. And he needs to address the people who are actually in front of him. And so he suggests that he's going to go through the whole system of the doctrines of grace that saints may be edified and built up in their most holy faith. It's a great instruction to us, a great reminder to us how important it is to take account of the people who are in front of us. We are not simply preaching by rote. We're not preaching with our eyes screwed tightly shut. We need to think about what's actually taking place around us and who's actually sitting in front of us. Now, that doesn't mean that we're pandering to the people who are in front of us, of course, and Spurgeon has never done that, but it does mean that we need to think about what we do and why we do it. 
perhaps we're we're in an environment where very few people are coming in. And actually, we need to preach the gospel so that, first of all, the saints will be stirred up, but also there'll be something to invite people to come and hear. Or perhaps we're in an environment where people have for years been poorly instructed. And there it may be more our responsibility to do something like Spurgeon's setting out to do here and to work our way through particular instruction. It's vital to take account then of uh, the environment that we're in and the circumstances that we face, not to be swayed by them, not to be uh, dominated by them, but properly under God to think, to whom am I now preaching? and with what particular purpose or intent. And Spurgeon, now he's got this substantially fixed congregation, is going to shift a little bit away from what he describes as the doctrine of faith or the teaching of believers' baptism, and rather than stay upon the surface of matters, he's going to head into some of the deeper waters. And for him, that's primarily to do with the doctrines of grace. And so he's going to start with the doctrine of redemption, that Christ gave his life a ransom for many. Now, don't imagine at this point, as I hope we'll see, that Spurgeon's simply going to shift away from uh, a devotional, Christ-centred approach, and he's now going to become dryly didactic. That is, he's simply going to teach in a very dull and dry fashion. No, he's going to be as as full of the richness of the gospel as ever, but on this occasion he's going to be uh, more instructing uh, rather than simply exhorting that people would come to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he begins by reminding us that we know that there are many different theories of redemption. He says, all Christians hold that Christ died to redeem, but all Christians do not teach the same redemption. We differ as to the nature of atonement, as to the design of redemption. And he's speaking primarily here of the distinction between the Arminian, on the one hand, those who typically follow the uh, teaching of a, a scholar called Arminius, and the Calvinist, on the other hand, who stand in the tradition of Calvinism. Now, we believe, says Spurgeon, speaking here more as a Calvinist, we hold that Christ, when he died, had an object in view. And that object will most assuredly and beyond a doubt be accomplished. We measure the design of Christ's death by the effect of it. So we're really asking, for whom did Christ die? And you answer that question by looking at the people who demonstrate by their faith and their life that they are those for whom the Lord Jesus laid down his life. And Spurgeon says we're not afraid to say what we believe, that Christ came into this world with the intention of saving a multitude which no man can number. And we believe that as the result of this, every person for whom he died must beyond the shadow of a doubt be cleansed from sin and stand washed in blood before the Father's throne. Now notice that Spurgeon then is not thinking of a particular redemption, that is a ransom paid for a certain distinct group of people as something that is by definition small and miserly. It is a multitude which no man can number. 
But that doesn't mean that it is for every person in the entire world. That doesn't undermine the reality that Christ died for a particular people. We do not believe, he said, that Christ made any effectual atonement for those who are forever damned, which is the logical consequence if you think that Christ died for everybody, but not everybody is saved. And so, he says, I'm just hinting at the differences at this point. What I want to do is to show the greatness of the redemption of Christ Jesus. This is a wonderful way, then, of approaching his topic. He's not so much defensive as offensive in the sense that he's going to go on the on the attack. He wants you to understand the nature, the glorious reality of this great redemption that Christ has accomplished. And he wants to measure it in five ways to run along five dimensions. First of all, from the heinousness of our own guilt. Second, by the sternness of divine justice. Third, by the price which he paid then by the deliverance which he actually accomplished, and at last the vast number for whom this redemption is made, who again in the text are described as many. So you've got a five-headed sermon here, showing you at each point just how great is the redemption that our Lord Jesus Christ accomplished. So Spurgeon isn't trying to defend something that is uh, small and insignificant. He's not trying to diminish it or to restrain it. He wants you to understand the very essence of its greatness. And you see that, first of all, by the sins which we have committed. If you measure what Christ accomplished in ransoming his people by our own sins, you will understand the greatness of redemption. Why? Because, says Spurgeon, one sin can ruin a soul forever. It is not in the power of the human mind to grasp the infinity of evil that slumbers in the bowels of one solitary sin. There is a very infinity of guilt couched in one transgression against the majesty of heaven. Now, remember that we measure sin by the one against whom it is committed. Sin is against God, the infinitely holy, the incalculably glorious Lord of heaven and earth. And that is how you understand how horrible, how heinous sin really is. And he says, once you understand that, then you'll see just how vile sin really is and just what kind of punishment sin deserves and therefore what kind of redemption is required in order to bring us out from under the guilt of our sin. He says, if God had once manifested your heart to yourself, you would bear me witness that so far from exaggerating, the poor words that he's just used to describe sin in its ugliness fail to describe the desperateness of our evil. And yet the ransom of Christ is what saved us from all these sins and from all their consequences. The men for whom Jesus died, however great they sin when they believe, are justified from all their transgressions. That is, they are not judged guilty, but declared righteous in the sight of God on account of the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. In one moment of faith, in that triumphant moment of confidence in Christ, his great redemption, says Spurgeon, takes away the guilt of numerous years. So you think about sin. 
you think about one sin. Then you remember that you have not committed one sin, but you are a great sinner and that this sin is against the altogether glorious God and that this sin against such a God therefore deserves a fearful wrath and judgment. And it is this sin from which Christ has redeemed not only one or two of us, but all his beloved people. Once you realize the horror of sin, you cannot help but acknowledge the glory of Christ in his redeeming love. Think about the greatness of guilt, and that will tell you about the greatness of redemption. The second thing to consider, the second measure of Christ's great redeeming work, is the sternness of divine justice. Yes, says Spurgeon, God is love, but God is also sternly just. He is not the God of some men's imagination who thinks so little of sin that he just passes by without demanding any punishment for it. God is holy. The God of love is a holy God. And so, says Spurgeon, learn to look upon God as being as severe in his justice as if he were not loving and yet as loving as if he were not severe. His love does not diminish his justice, nor does his justice in the least degree make warfare upon his love. The two things are sweetly linked together in the atonement of Christ. Not only is God's love demonstrated there, but so too is the justice of God. And so he says, think what must have been the greatness of the atonement, which was the substitution for all the agony which God would have cast upon us if he had not poured it upon Christ. In other words, think what justice should have done to you because of your sin and then consider that in the atoning work of Jesus Christ, that justice was satisfied for every single person for whom the Lord Jesus Christ died. And he says sometimes men will be given grace by God to see the sternness of justice in their own consciences. When you're cut to the heart, when you really begin to grasp at least something of the awesome holiness of the God of heaven and yourself as a guilty sinner in his hands and what it means for you to have offended against him. The marvel is that there upon the cross, God has provided in the person of his son the sacrifice by which that justice is satisfied. And that tells you how great is the redemption that Christ has accomplished. But there's a third thing we need to press on. Remember, there are five of these great measures. We measure the greatness of Christ's redemption by the price he paid. The sufferings fell on the Lord Jesus in one perpetual shower through his life until the last dread hour of darkness when not in a shower but a cloud, a torrent, a cataract of grief, his agonies were dashed upon him. Spurgeon is telling us here that the the need we have is to measure now the sufferings which the Lord underwent. And he's reminding us that he suffered through life and that he suffered particularly in the hours of his sufferings and death. And he talks there in this sermon and you need to read it and perhaps even read it out loud so that it sinks 
into you. He talks about the miseries and the horrors of the way that the Lord Jesus was treated all the way up to the time when the cross was lifted from the ground and our Lord hanging from it was dropped into the ground and his whole body is racked with agonies. But Spurgeon also reminds us that what our Saviour suffered in his body was nothing compared to what he endured in his soul. You cannot guess, and I cannot help you to guess, he says, what the Lord Jesus endured within. And this is something that it's so important to remember, that while Christ did bear our sins in his own body on the cross, that his suffering was in his whole humanity. And what he underwent as he cried out in the darkness, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the sufferings that the God of heaven in all his holy justice poured out upon his beloved son, knowing himself in his soul to have taken upon himself the sins of his people and suffering the agonies of hell on our behalf. It's not just the surface sufferings of his flesh. It's the sufferings of his whole humanity. Don't separate the two in a wrong sense, but understand the nature of Christ's sufferings, that the price he paid was to undergo hell on behalf of his people. And that is the measure that you need then, the third measure to understand what Christ has accomplished. There's a fourth way, Spurgeon's being brief, so must we be, the glorious deliverance which he has effected, what he's actually accomplished, that he has set his people free, that he has genuinely saved them from their sins, that they have rest in him, that there is now no condemnation, that the the horrors of the, uh, the, the punishment that have hovered over us have been taken away by the Lord Jesus Christ. We are in him justified from all the things from which we could not be freed by the works of the law. Tell it in heaven, says Spurgeon, that none can lay anything to the charge of God's elect. Tell it upon earth that God's redeemed are free from sin in Jehovah's sight. Tell it even in hell that God's elect can never come there, for Christ has died for them, and who is he that shall condemn them? This is deliverance. This is that so great salvation. This is what Christ has accomplished. Understand then the glory of his redeeming work in that it so entirely, so completely, so totally, so fully delivers those for whom he died from all the punishment that their sin deserves and secures for them a right standing with God. And so he rushes on to his fifth point, that Christ Jesus, as, he, as it we're told in our text, came into the world to give his life a ransom for, here's the emphasis, many. Measure the greatness of Christ's redemption by the extent of the design of it. And now he goes back to his first point. And he says, we are, we're Calvinists, not because we, we are slaves to John Calvin, but because we think Calvin understood the gospel. And he says, now who truly limits the gospel? He says, the Arminian, the one who says that Christ died for all men, actually does not believe that that is the case because not everybody is saved. 
the Arminian limits the gospel by its effectiveness, that though Christ died for everybody, not everybody is saved, and so there is some kind of falling short, there's some lack in the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the Calvinist says, by contrast, we say Christ so died that he infallibly secured the salvation of a multitude that no man can number, who through that death not only may be saved, but are saved, must be saved, and cannot by any possibility run the hazard of being anything but saved. If you want an atonement, says Spurgeon, that doesn't atone, that doesn't secure anything, that offers no guarantee, you you keep it. That's fine. We want the one that actually saves sinners. We don't want an atonement that's like a great wide bridge that only goes halfway across the river. We want an atonement that crosses the whole distance, that actually brings people all the way to salvation. And that's what we have in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You may say it is a narrow bridge, but it goes all the way across. And for all its alleged narrowness, many have been delivered by this glorious ransoming that our Lord Jesus Christ accomplished. And so he says, just just tell me the answer to a couple of questions. Do you want a saviour? Do you feel that you need a saviour? Are you this morning conscious of sin? Has the Holy Spirit taught you that you are lost? Then Christ died for you and you will be saved. So Spurgeon's not holding back because of this. No, it's, it's what inspires him to hold out a whole Christ to the to the sinners who are in front of him when you're stripped of every hope but Christ when you're prepared to come empty-handed and take Christ to be your all and to be yourself nothing at all then you may look up to Christ and may say thou dear thou bleeding lamb of God thy griefs were endured for me by thy stripes I am healed and by thy sufferings I am pardoned you see particular redemption is Spurgeon's warrant to declare to every sinner that whosoever comes and believes in this Jesus will find in him a complete and effectual salvation. Redemption is particular, and Christ has not failed to save all his people and to secure their salvation from its very beginning to its very end. What a wonderful example of doctrinal preaching. So positive, so proactive, so definite, so forward, so full of devotion, so full of Jesus Christ. There is light here and there is heat. The mind is illuminated under the influence of the Holy Spirit as the heart is warmed by the same Spirit of Christ. And as we work our way through here, the, the, the points that Spurgeon is making are not simply then these, these negative responses to charges. No, he's insisting upon the glory of Christ's redeeming work. It's an unashamed testimony to the final accomplishments of the Lord Jesus Christ. Consider the heinousness of your sin and its guilt. Consider the sternness of divine justice. Consider the price which Christ paid. Consider the deliverance which he actually accomplished. And consider the vast number for whom this redemption is made. This uh, great multitude which no man can number. This redemption 
is magnificent. This redemption is sure, fixed, certain, absolute, definite and particular. And it is limited, yes, in its intent, limited, yes, in its effect. But to speak of limit then in that sense should not for one moment suggest that there is anything miserly or constrained. No, here you have the the incalculably glorious, the infinitely worthy death of the Lord Jesus Christ that was intended by him, intended by his Father to save every one of his people from their sins, whoever they are, wherever they are, however far they have gone from Jesus Christ, that when the great day comes, an innumerable host will be gathered in the presence of God, praising him and the Lamb as if he had been slain, who is in the midst of the throne. And that's the redemption that we have. So, here's Spurgeon, before now a a more or less fixed congregation, preaching the truth as it is in Jesus, holding up and exalting Christ, so that the convictions of the people to whom he preaches may be fixed and sure, and that they may delight in this so great salvation. Let's not then establish some false dichotomy, some false contrast between uh, evangelistic ministry, which if you've heard any of Spurgeon's preaching, uh, if you've listened to any of these podcasts, you'll say, well, that was full of truth. And now this more instructive preaching where you still have to say how full of Christ it is. It's, it, it's a converting sermon. I, I think it must be. How can you hear these things and not be drawn to the Lord Jesus Christ, even as your your mind is sharpened, your understanding is deepened? And I trust the delight of God's people, even as we consider these things, is enhanced when we understand the so great salvation, the greatness of that redemption which our Lord accomplished on the cross at Calvary. May God bless this to our souls and to the souls of many more. Amen. My name is Jeremy Walker and this is a Media Gratii production. I hope you've enjoyed From the Heart of Spurgeon. For more information and to read along with us week by week, follow us on Twitter at Reading Spurgeon. That's Twitter at Reading Spurgeon.